Kia ora koutou. Welcome to the Happy Revolution podcast. My name is Matthew Bartlett, and I'm one of the Christian chaplains at Te Heringa Waka, Victoria University of Wellington. Today, I'm really pleased to be interviewing the Reverend Dr. Rebecca Dudley. Rebecca is an international humanitarian law advisor at the New Zealand Red Cross. She has a BA in history from Yale University, a Master's of Divinity from Union Seminary in New York, and a PhD in international law from Queen's University, Belfast. Rebecca is speaking with me today in a personal capacity. I so appreciate you making the time for this morning, Rebecca. It's wonderful. Delighted to be here. Are you happy to introduce yourself briefly? Of course. My name's Rebecca. I'm Rebecca Dodley, and I find myself in New Zealand in Wellington after many years in Belfast in Northern Ireland and then years in New York City and years in London and then some years in Haiti, all doing different things. Grew up in the Midwest of the U.S. I went to Yale University where I studied history and then I went to Haiti and I always used to joke that I went to Yale University as an undergraduate but then the Mombe Croce School of International Relations, Mombe Croce being the tiny village where I lived for three years and learned a great deal about how the world works, really, in in the years that I was in Haiti, and studied theology at Union Seminary in New York City, which is part of the Columbia University system. Then was lured to London by my then-boyfriend, who became my husband, and we spent 13 years in London, where I worked in international development work with Christian Aid. And then we were all, as a family, lured over to Belfast, where we spent another 13 years as part of the Northern Ireland peace process in in different roles there. And then a third sort of luring away from the place where we were at that time was that my husband was appointed as the Howard Patterson Professor of Theology and Public Issues at Otago University. So he works um, most of the time in Dunedin. I work with the Red Cross in Wellington, and my work with the Red Cross in Wellington is as something called the International Humanitarian Law Advisor. And what that means is that I work on the sort of key elements that make the Red Cross unique as a humanitarian movement. On the one hand, the principled humanitarian response that we try to make And on the other hand, the legal frameworks that can protect vulnerable people in humanitarian emergencies. So here we are in this lovely, quiet library, and I'm going to talk about any or all of that. Mm, Thank you. (laughs) Yeah. What a journey. I'm interested, what did you learn from that village school of international relations in (laughs) Haiti? So many things. The Haitian culture is profoundly, deeply courteous in the small politenesses that are extended to to others. And so, for example, when you're walking down the street, you have to pause and you have to clap eyes on someone and ask them how they are Mm. and listen to the answer. And then you pause again before you move again down the street. And so it can take quite a while to walk down the street. But for an American who is always running from one place to the next, that was a really challenging lesson. The other thing I learned maybe was on a more serious nature and equally challenging, which is that when there are when there are terrible setbacks 
to our hopes and dreams, and there have been so many times in Haitian history terrible setbacks to the hopes and dreams of really courageous people. Not everyone makes it. It's kind of easy from the outside to be a bit glib about people's courage and resilience, especially if you're in my line of work, and you do see a lot of extraordinary courage and resilience. But um, not everyone does make it. And so the path that you walk, if you're trying to walk alongside people who are in really difficult situations, is respecting that everyone has different ways that they they manage things and cope with, with, you know, really difficult circumstances, difficult setbacks to their hopes. Sounds like a difficult lesson. Yeah, yeah. I'm thinking in particular of a young woman who was a community activist who was working for democracy in Haiti in the 80s, and um, and along with many other activists um, who went on to do other things. But when democracy in Haiti had a terrible setback in 1987, an attempt to, to vote in popular elections for the first time after baby Doc Duvalier was ousted from the country, that was sadly um, and very violently uh, repressed by some of the kind of old guard. The attempt for democracy was violently repressed and she really she really struggled um, mentally with that and, and there was a lot of fallout. So not a tidy story, but, you know, part of reality. What were you try- attempting to do in Haiti? I was working with an organization that was linked to the Mennonites in the U.S. called the Mennonite Central Committee, And the Mennonite Central Committee arose out of the pacifist commitments of the Mennonite Church, where they found that if they were going to seek peace, they had to work for justice. And their particular strengths as Mennonites and being from agricultural communities, principally in in North America, was around working for food security justice and assisting people in their farming and other kinds of methods that would increase yields on small farming plots. And my role in that was that I was the documentation person, you could say. I was I was sort of the coordinator of the, the project. And I lived in this tiny community, as, as I say. I had the privilege of becoming fluent in Haitian Creole and learning a lot from colleagues, Haitian colleagues and, and North American colleagues who were working for the the food security part of things, for gender justice issues in terms of um, women in leadership emerging through that area, and then ultimately for trying to assist the kind of precondition of voting, which is around literacy issues. Because if you think about it, having a free and fair election when people can't read is enormously challenging. So, you know, sort of assisting with literacy issues, assisting with local civic engagement of people. And then I also was able at that time to do a bit of documentation on some of the issues with respect to human rights respect and lack of respect and and to get documentation through to other places where it could be used for Mm. uh, improving um, the defense of human rights. This is kind of a philosophical parenthesis, maybe, but you mentioned human rights. Where do they come from? I used to work with the Human Rights Commission in Northern Ireland. Um, We used to say that human rights are human needs that are protected in law, which I think is quite nice and quite neat because it brings in both the sort of intuitive sense that we all have of what human needs might be, but it also brings in the legal aspect 
The legal aspect is quite an important thing. I mean, I remember once in, in Northern Ireland participating in a, a street demonstration and then there were thousands of people who were passing by the doors of, you know, some of the main shops in the high street. I overheard a lady from the pavement saying, but I have a right to shop, you know, and, um, and so because she couldn't kind of immediately get in the door of the main department store. I thought that was funny, but it also kind of touched another element, which is that, you know, that there's not everything that we think or say or assert as rights is actually legally protected in law as much as some other things. So the, the rights that have tended to be kind of enshrined in law are rights, and, and this is particularly in the European tradition and reflected elsewhere as well, but that's the one I know the best in terms of my involvement in Northern Ireland. The rights that tend to be enshrined in law are rights that are necessary in a democratic society. And so um, when we then start to ask questions about, well, what's necessary in a democratic society, that opens up a whole door into, you know, how then our rights are legally protected. So, for example, um, we in a democratic society should have the freedom to express ourselves and to um, and to um, and the freedom and not infringe the, uh, the freedom of other people to express themselves. Where does that hit? Where does that cross the line? Well, it crosses a line when it infringes on the rights and freedoms of others. So you have some limits on rights when you come across what we call hate speech. So, you know, none of us have the right to infringe the rights and freedoms of others. As a judge said quite memorably, where do my rights stop and your rights begin? Well, my rights and where your nose starts. Your rights and where my nose starts, you know. So so that's the balancing act and, and, and that's the kind of concept of, of human rights is, at least in, in that tradition, which is very much reflected in the Northern Irish experience because upholding rights and promoting rights in a democratic society is what you need to do to build a society that is characterized by peace and the rule of law which is, of course, what Northern Ireland was trying to do in the peace process. So rights come right to the front of, of that process. I, I've never heard that linked up with uh, what is the kind of society that we're trying to, or what is necessary, to, what's a precondition for that kind of society. Yeah. One of the privileges of that, that I felt in, in Northern Ireland and in our many years there was that there would actually be seminars where people from vastly different backgrounds and some real conflict between different families and family members that would be represented in a group would be talking about, well, what kind of society are we trying to build? And I, I've never lived in a place where people are thinking, oh, what kind of society do we want to build? And so coming out of conflict and sadly in Northern Ireland still experiencing a lot of underlying and sometimes very obvious violence it's really a, a crucial kind of survival question. What was your role in the Northern Ireland peace process? I worked as the advisor to the police service of Northern Ireland for their police training. That involved trying to take dry law and help people who would be police officers or were police officers or staff to translate that into making decisions. And so if you think about some of the decisions that police officers have to make that are often with very limited information, 
you know, it's it's all about what is possible to decide about the use of your powers to do your duties. If you think about it, the work of police officers is vast and diverse, and it includes all sorts of different activities. And it can include everything from public order policing to sitting in front of an individual who's just had the worst day of her life and experienced multiple sexual assaults. And there is a massive range of of skills that are required for for all of those those tasks and and you know vastly different and there's different legislation and different human rights engagements that might come into play with each of those but let's take the the second example sitting in front of somebody who's having the worst day of her life the first aspect of human rights is to realize that you are engaging with a human being so human rights sometimes start with the human being and that's about empathy and listening and respect. And certainly your responsibility as a police officer is to bring an offender to justice. But in order to do that and in order to achieve the aim, which is your, your duty, you also have to treat the person as a human being. But you you know, you um, you have to gather evidence. And so how do you do that in a way that is that starts with the human being? My father was a police officer while I was growing up for a, a decade or more. So I have a different perspective, I think, on policing than many of my contemporaries. It sounds like, from the stories you've told so far, you are interested in tackling the world as it is and seeing what you can do to bring it a little more in line with the world as it should be. That's interesting. I remember in Northern Ireland... We had a, a challenge to some group I was part of. We had a challenge to say in 11 words what our vocation was in the, the work that I was doing in Northern Ireland, which included a few different jobs, including that job with the police, but also the Human Rights Commission and also with issues around sexual and gender-based violence. I would summarize my vocation by saying law can help bring down walls and build, oh yes, imagine, imaginative law can help bring down walls and build peace. Imagine. I don't know how many words that is, yeah. <laughs> but you know, so just think, trying to harness the power of imagination and law together in, in how we build peace, build relationships, and, and bring down those walls. That's very interesting to think of law as a sort of creative, imaginative, generative thing. Mm-hmm. Not the way I typically think of it as a non-lawyer. Yeah, I think you're among good company there. Even a lot of lawyers don't think of it that way, <laughs> I would imagine. Yes, I kind of started thinking of that when in Northern Ireland, I used to tell the story of human rights coming out of World War II. And the fact was that when some of the... Um, body of human rights law that we work with today in the sort of most recent era of human rights law started after World War II with the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which was one of the founding documents of the UN, but followed then by a number of different international agreements on civil and political rights and, and economic and social and cultural rights and um, a convention against torture and elimination of racial discrimination and various other kinds of international treaties. But that period of time just after World War II when people were picking up the rubble and trying to figure out what to do. And I used to ask groups thinking about this kind of period of time to try to remember their way back to they knew of that period of history 
and how people were dealing with not only the kind of physical debris of World War II, but also just the psychological blowout of it. Because there were two things that happened in World War II that were just psychologically absolutely devastating if you cared about the world. At least there was so many things, but including two big things that you can think of now. One was the fact that there had been this democratic society that had so been distorted and manipulated by power that it had resulted in a genocide. And for a thoughtful person in 1946 to try to figure out how that happened um, is quite worrying and very disturbing. But the other is, of course, the use of this new weapon that meant that, you know, the stakes of any kind of conflict automatically went through the stratosphere in terms of... Literally. um, Yeah, in terms of the potential to wipe out everything, not just human beings, but everything, in terms of the use of these new weapons. The world in the late 40s that was building these new laws, building this new institution of the UN, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and so forth, when they were writing those documents, they had no idea if humanity would even live another 20 years or 10, you know? And they they imagined a way to try to deal with these unthinkable possibilities that were presenting themselves, you know, both in the Holocaust and in the use of these new weapons. And to me, that story is a story that's essentially both quite hopeful and defiant in terms of trying to figure out a way forward and out of the rubble. And the fact is, for all the screw-ups and difficulties and things we could all criticize about all of these different efforts for building peace and so forth, we're still here. Yeah. <laughs> here we are. It's great. We're still here. You know, what are we um, sort of, uh, Universal Declaration of Human Rights was 1949, and, you know, here we are. I find some hope in that, and I, I, I think that's what imaginative law is, is trying to sort of figure out a way through. Um, it's interesting, you, you pick up that it was two democracies doing these terrible things. I wonder if the human rights are almost functioning like a like a sort of meta-constitution that kind of constrains what any particular democratic country might decide to do. Well, I mean, I think that then having seen some potential in law, we have to also always acknowledge that um, there are also limits to law. Every law that we make has both limits and potential and Often people will say things like, um, you know, what use are these laws? They're they're useless. People are violating them. And I have to maybe remind myself and everyone else that basically law has limits and it has potential. And, And so on the limits side, if you think about it, every single society in the world has laws against murder. But uh, we still find ways to murder each other. And yet we don't say, oh, look, that law is useless. We say, oh, no, we need to find ways to promote, uphold, defend, make that law more effective. And I think that's where the the job is, you know, in terms of acknowledging both the potential and the limits. Last year I came across, it was a, a clipping in a newspaper from 1949 or 1948, and it was in the New Zealand newspaper, maybe the Otago Daily Times, and it was about the debate at the UN about the Declaration of Human Rights. And it was the Russian ambassador to the UN was saying, got all this rubbish about the, the, the idea of the image of God in people. And um, in, in a more progressive society like Russia at the time, he was saying, 
we know that that's an outmoded concept and um, and therefore we're not that keen on this declaration was the, the gist of the clipping. Do you see any connection between that sort of Judeo-Christian story or the um, Hebrew Bible or Christian Bible image of God, all that stuff and the human rights story? It's really fascinating. When I was working for the Human Rights Commission in Northern Ireland, I had the opportunity to do a little bit of research into the development of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. And the the fabulous thing is that when you look into the development of it, it was based on a number of conferences in different parts of the world. I think there was one in Mexico City or Cancun, I'm not sure. But not only that, the people who are writing it sought input from a whole variety of different religious and philosophical traditions. So I think the perception might be that anything that was written in the 40s was like three white guys sitting in Switzerland. But in fact, actually, the inputs into this were were very impressively diverse for the, the late 1940s. Example was that Mahatma Gandhi was induced to write something, and he wrote a very quick letter from a train that he was on, and that went into the system. And, and so there was... There were some discernible schools of thought, including the the kind of what was emerging from sort of Marxist communist philosophies, you could call them, that would be anti-religion. But then there was also inputs from Confucianism, from Christianity. I think there was a Princeton theologian who made an input. So, so I think all the major religious traditions had inputs into the development mm-hmm. of, of that document. In the, in the person of various philosophers and economists and theologians and so forth. What emerged was a interesting reflection of those contributions without being exactly any of them. So they're trying to draw the best of lots of different streams of human thought. I think they were trying to figure out what the human needs were that need protected, mm-hmm. going back to that definition. And they were trying to write it based on recent human experience, hmm. yeah, using the tools that could come from different philosophical and religious traditions. Hmm. So, for example, there was a huge debate on the interaction between rights and responsibilities, and that, that found its resolution in Article 29, if memory serves, around how everyone has responsibility to the community in which alone human beings can flourish or some kind of wording like that, which was kind of an interesting resolution of that. From what I got remember from this study, um, but it, you probably can find out a lot more now from what you were talking about, there were um, deep divisions between the, the more Marxist scholars who wanted to bring to the fore the economic and social and social rights, and then the sort of more for want of a better shorthand, and maybe more Western philosophy that we're looking at civil and political rights being brought to the fore more. So that that continual sort of tension went into the early movement of, mm. of human rights documentation, but is reflected then, you know, the way it was resolved was through the two covenants that were then um, negotiated in the 60s, where you had the covenant on economic, social, and cultural rights on the one hand, and civil and political rights on the other. And together they were considered to be a kind of unified statement of the kind of needs that needed to be protected in law. You mentioned way back studying at Union Theological Seminary. What did you study there and and how does that all sort of fit in with the stories you've told so far? I went to Union Seminary straight after living for three years in the village in Haiti. 
I wasn't thinking that I would go to seminary. My my father had been at Yemen Seminary. My father was pastor. And so I explored some other options before I ended up kind of succumbing to going to seminary the way my father had. I thought probably I was, you know, like a lot of other people from an Ivy League school, I thought I was probably heading towards working for the World Bank or, or something like that. And that could have been a path. But I Ultimately, there are two experiences that I had in Haiti that made me end up in seminary. One was the reflection on my friend who I talked about before, who struggled with those setbacks to democracy. And I tried to think of the way that I could make sense of all the experiences, the power of evil, really, and the power of death-dealing forces, if we want to put it that way, in Haiti during the very turbulent political changes. The fact that people try to destroy each other and not only destroy each other's bodies, but their reputations. I found that as I reflected on that, the only kind of story that kind of helped me make sense of the world was actually of trying to find and tell a story of a God of life, a, a God who shared our life and showed us a new way of living and, you know, a God who um, was killed but then was more powerful than death, you know, and that, that kind of identifying with that story was something that was very important to me. And so that was one thing that took me to seminary. And then the other thing was that um, I was in church once and we were um, having communion and it was as it happened, that was in the middle of what was called the hungry time, which happened every year for several months after the crops were planted, but before the harvest. During the hungry time, there were a lot of people who really didn't have enough to eat. And, and communion was shared um, in the church. And the pastor said, I'm the bread of life. And the plates of bread and juice were passed around. And what I noticed was that everyone was looking at each other what seemed to me with some level of suspicion that nobody would take too much. Mm. And the challenge of hearing the words, I'm the bread of life, where people in the congregation are actually physically hungry, mm. to me was um, perhaps like the deepest theological challenge that, that I could imagine. And so I didn't end up working in the World Bank. <laughs> I, went to, I decided that those questions of trying to kind of identify and follow this narrative of a God of life and, you know, trying to think about what it means to make the bread of life real, that those would be the things that would take me to seminary. And when I got to seminary, I explained some version of this to some people in a, in a seminar or something like that. And they, they all just listened and they were like, oh, well, good luck with that. <laughs> good questions i don't know if you're gonna find the answers here <laughs> and did you um i think it's i think that i think that we continually choose the stories that are going to shape us mm. and that that is a continual choice and so going to seminary gave me some tools to try to tell a story before I went to Belfast, I had many years in London where I worked with Christian Aid, and part of my role in Christian Aid was to help church people make connections between their faith story and people who are hungry or people who are living in situations of kind of systemic injustice and so forth. So 
had the opportunity to explore ways that we could kind of live into a story that brought together that kind of commitment to, you know, the bread of life. Is that the bread of life? Is that a key phrase in your thinking? Not every day, but when you asked me that question of why I went to seminary, <laughs> that definitely that definitely was the, the kind of the driver, mm. is bringing together that sort of like affirmation of there, there's some relational as, affirmation and talking about the bread of life um, because unless you are willing to kind of look at where the gaps might be in your community, then, you know, it's, it's pretty meaningless, I mm. think. It's interesting that um, your perception at that time and perhaps now still is that sort of seminary versus World Bank, like that adjusting economic structures was not as powerful as going deeper into the story and finding ways of telling it well. Mm. That would be a more effective way of, of getting people the bread of life. Well, I mean, I think, you know, I was raised, as probably you were too, Matthew, with this really strong sense that one tries to hear a call and then follow it. And so, you know, the sense of vocation, I had, you know, I, I think that was that was more more of what led me rather than thinking, oh, this is objectively more effective than that. You know, it's just that it's more what are you called to do? Mm. What's the thing that you are asked to do? Because I suppose that that is, you know, really one way that I find helpful to kind of manage in the world that is so full of chaos and complexity and so forth is that actually you're not called to do everything. You're just called to do the thing that you're called to do mm. and to be attentive to what your corner of things is. It sounds very connected to one of the questions we often ask about what keeps you sort of sane or grounded. I love that question. I'd love to hear other people's answers too. Um, I think that the searching out, continual searching out and listening and, and delighting in kind of creative new ways of solving problems, telling stories. I mean, this weekend, there were all these festivals happening all over Wellington. I know there was like the Newtown Festival and there was Pride and there were various things. I didn't get to the big crowded ones, but I went to I went to this wonderful initiative called No Parking which was when different organizations and individuals make proposals to take over a parking space for a day. And they were completely delightful expressions of creativity and engagement and inviting people in. And there was a, a woman who had motorcycle gear on and she was doing people's ironing. And that was kind of wild and interesting and expressive. And then, you know, a little bit further down, there were places where you could do those kind of highlighter poems out of old books, you know. And then a little bit further down, there was a kind of karaoke open mic dance floor, you know, and similar. So I love that. That, to me, that keeps me sane because, you know, it keeps reminding me that we just like have this inexhaustible sort of creativity and fun and different kinds of ways of solving problems. If we can just kind of access it and tap it I think on a you know on a similar note, but you know in 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 sort of a more serious context, I I, I know in Ukraine, um, for example, my colleagues in the Red Cross are teaching first aid for weapons wounded people in basements while there's air raid sirens happening. You know, in, in Syria, I, I spoke with my counterpart who's a legal advisor um, in the Syrian Arab Red Crescent, and she told me that that there's still people who are queuing up 
to be part of humanitarian response in Syria, even though a, a very high number of people have been killed in the in the course of trying to do humanitarian response in Syria. I think the numbers are are over sixty now. And so I find that really, really inspiring to to know that there's, you know, in any kind of humanitarian emergency, there's the worst that comes out in people, of course, almost by definition, that's kind of what fuels it and makes it chaotic and traumatic and everything. But there's also um, quite often the the best as well. You mentioned earlier Corrie Mila. Uh-huh. I don't know very much about Corrie Mueller. Can you tell me about that place or thing or whatever it is? Yeah, that place, that thing, that group of people. Um, so Corrie Mueller is a place. It's a gathering place on the north coast of Northern Ireland. On a clear day, you can just about see Scotland over on the other side of the sea. And the name is a is derived from Irish language. Originally, they, they thought that the name meant um, Hill of Harmony. But more appropriately, evidently, uh, more recently, they found the etymology. It means a lumpy crossing place. And um, what Corimila is, is a group of people who got together in the late 60s out of the chaplaincy. Actually, Matthew, you might be interested to know um, the chaplaincy of Queen's University, Belfast. And they tried to create a place where people would be able to feel safe and have difficult conversations across a divided society. Mm. And so that mission has continued even in the middle of the Northern Ireland Troubles over many decades. Corimila became a place where, um, for example, politicians could meet secretly and try to forge out some kind of common ground without having anything at stake in terms of public profile. It became a place where other ordinary people could meet across a kind of polarized society where there was a lot of violence and try to work out try to share what their story was and listen to other people's stories. So the emphasis in Corimila is around facilitating and hearing and having really difficult conversations that might lead somewhere to a better society um, in terms of relationships. There are a number of us who are members of the community, and by being members, we make a commitment to... Uh, the thing that's most important to me as a member is that I make a commitment that I'm... I'm part of the brokenness of society and I want to be part of the healing. And there are a number of other things that we make a commitment to in terms of the way that we interact with people and try to facilitate those kind of conversations across polarized societies. Mm-hmm. Of course, Northern Ireland's experience as a polarized society is unique in one way, but unfortunately it shares a lot of features with a lot of societies that are divided and becoming more divided in many ways. So there's possibly some some wisdom that can be shared about how to have these conversations and how to be. I'm interested in what kind of uh, wisdom might be there. I feel like there are quite a few divisions in, in New Zealand society and on various things. So there's sort of urban-rural divide sometimes in evidence, for instance, and I have a sense that at the moment we're in a bit of a phase of mostly gathering into tribes and patting each other on the back within the tribes. Not all that many great spaces for really bridging across difference and what do you know about how to do that the Corey Miller experience is there's a, a number of different um, aspects of it that I think have some wisdom to offer about how we live together just naming two the at Corey Miller everyone um, chips in and does the dishes mm. you know so 
Um, so there's a beautiful, beautiful site where people take wonderful walks to the beach and do different other th activities together, art projects and all sorts of stuff. And, and, you know, get a bit of respite in, in many cases from really hard situations where they're living and, you know, kind of get away with the kids and have some really interesting conversations across different activities that may not be explicitly about the problems in Northern Ireland, but are about doing stuff together and then sharing stories. But everyone does the dishes. Everyone, like from the chief executive and the leader of the community to the um, to somebody who's just walked in the door. And doing the dishes is really important, you know, because of, you know, you have conversations while you do the dishes and you're doing something together. Um, so there's that kind of attitude. But secondly, is what I said at the beginning, uh, or in terms of talking about Mila, that it's very compelling if you try to think that maybe if there's a problem, you might be part of the problem. There might be something that you are bringing to the situation where, you know, you need to listen and you need to change. Um, and, and, and so it does kind of invite you to ask questions that might be a little bit uncomfortable about how maybe you know, there's change that might be required in yourself mm. as part of, if you want to be part of a solution, mm. you know, I know, for example, I'm part of the problem in the fact that there's climate breakdown right now. And how do I want to be part of the solution? For example, is Corimila a religious sort of place? Uh-huh. Yes. Um, it's founded on a strong sense of a, of a Christian story, but of course, in the Northern Irish context, that's challenging because you have different angles into Christian story from a strong Protestant identity and strong Catholic identities that are perceived to be sometimes in opposition to each other. Um, so some, sometimes when I used to do training, people would um, say, oh, no, we're different religions. I was like, no, hold on just a second. Protestant and Catholic, same religion. <laughs> you know, Jewish, Buddhist, Christian, you know, different religions, but no, but people would perceive themselves as being different religions. More recently, there's been an, a lot of people who have been involved with Quaymela who don't, um, for all sorts of very understandable and good reasons, respond to the kind of Christian narrative or identity of the place. And so there's conversation and involvement about how how it reflects other stories as well and, you know, still maintains a sort of sense of identity mm. yeah so it's it's a, it's an interesting dialogue at the moment yeah amazing it's evidently still quite a big part of your life and identity and things mm. even though it's quite a way away from yeah from the very Wellington much and, yeah. very much it kind of holds me accountable in terms of that one thing of thinking okay well how might i be part of the problem mm. and how do i want to be part of the solution which is um no fun to think about because it's way more fun to think about how other people are the problem <laughs> Yeah. And way more human, maybe. <laughs> yeah. Makes me wonder about, possibly this is too intense, I'm not sure, I'm just thinking of the church that I'm involved in. I feel like we've got a kind of simmering, there's some simmering stuff under the surface about sexuality and gender and mm. sort of stuff. that, And the, all the obvious sort of different camps and mm. lines that mm. could be drawn. And we, we, It's just too tricky to talk about because it'll be trouble. Mm. Do you have any ideas about, or suggestions or what you've learned from peacemaking and um, different, different conversations across divisions. How could I tackle that? How could I be part of a useful solution there? It sounds like I shouldn't come in there thinking, I know how things should be. And if only people would agree with me, then. Hmm. 
I, that's a very good question. I, I would need to think about that a little bit more. I think that people's starting points are are often not obvious. I think that's that's fair to say as a summary. Um, I, and just before I left Northern Ireland, I was in Presbyterian Church in the in the foyer during coffee hour when an older lady came up to me who's a real, um, I, I mean, I, I know I'm a bit of a battle axe, so I'll say she was a battle axe as well. <laughs> so, you know, here's another battle axe coming up to me. She's maybe 20 years older than me, and she was telling me in a very loud voice that her son was coming home to visit and that he was gay and that he said, love me or lose me, mom. And, you know, like, I didn't know this lady very well, and I, but I did know enough to know that she wasn't actually just talking to me. She was announcing it to everyone in coffee hour. Mm. And that was going to be her way of basically saying, you know, here it is. This is my family member, and I am going to love him because I'm not going to lose him. Mm. You know, I was the vehicle that considered the safe vehicle for her to announce that to in coffee hour, whereby all the passers-by would hear. Mm. So I think Weirdly, sometimes there's a capacity of first surprise in some of these instances where we can't like automatically assume that we know all the ins and outs of how everybody else feels or thinks or what their life experience has been of these things. Mm. So it's hard. And then and then I, I would say also, you know, as in any situation where there's a underlying potential for violence, um, you know, whether it's sexual or gender based violence or perception of um, gender issues, the importance of, of um, safety for participants is really, really important. And so it's it's how to balance, you know, the capacity for surprise with the real absolute importance of, of people's rights being upheld and safety being mm. preserved for the participants, because it's, it's quite objectively not safe for some of these um, situations for people. I don't know. Have you found stuff that works? Not yet. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm interested in exploring that and trying to work out are there yeah, modes of conversation or or ways of creating safe spaces where people opt into a kind of conversation that, where they, they know ahead of time this could get sort of dicey but I know I know my limits sort of and I can handle this level of diciness or whatever mm-hmm. while also preserving the capacity for surprise like you say yeah yeah I, I hope we can always com- preserve our capacity for surprise because that to me is a another source of hope, yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. <laughs> Otherwise, we just get stuck, don't we? Yeah. You know? Nice segue. One of the themes of the, uh, the Happy Revolution podcast is that, that question of hope, like how do different people in different situations maintain hope? How do you? My observation would be that if anyone finds it really easy to hope, then they're not paying attention. There's a whole lot of good reasons why it's not easy to hope. So in the reality of that, I would draw from that the example that a colleague of mine made several yeah, some years ago where she noticed that the Presbyterian funeral service was a service of witness to the resurrection and the sort of defiant edge to that. And I've reflected often since then that, that actually hope is a decision, Hope is a decision that we make, and and sometimes it's a a defiant one. It's constantly sort of trying to choose that and make that decision. Um, I think, you know, sort of related to the sort of 
question about the stories that we lean into and the stories that we um, tell to shape us. It goes back to me for, to a choice to try to choose a God of life, you know, and 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 not that that um, minimizes the power of of death. Power of death is um, is pretty pretty strong. But um, if I'm choosing to try to live and tell a story um, about a God of life, then that to me has certain implications about going straight through the middle of despair and then coming out the other side into a world that God loves so much. Hmm. And what is the will for the world that this God loves so much? Hmm. You know, and kind of coming out into that and trying to be part of that um, in whatever my little way is. How can we tell what the, the will for the world from God might be? Speaking theoretically and generally about the will of God for the world is, I think, very difficult. But when you see the power of evil and death-dealing structural forces that keep people from forming um, a community and from from flourishing and being the human person fully alive, you know, or in the human communities, you know, fully flourishing, you know, then it's kind of possible maybe, I think, sometimes to navigate a way through that for, in terms of the ethics. Hmm. I've heard you use that word evil two or three times. It's not a, not a word I hear all that often uh-huh. in regular conversation. What, what does it mean to you? Is that a real thing in the world? Great question. It's a real thing. I'll maybe answer it by going on the other side of it. One of the things my my father said as a pastor that always stuck with me is that he felt that we were created for community. And I always loved that in terms of thinking, well, you know, what's the thing we're aiming for here? You know, and it's that created for community. I, I, I do love that and I do believe it. And I think that there are pressures and incentives and decisions that people make that divide us and destroy us. And so maybe that would be what I would call evil. But I think the danger, obviously, of, of using language like that is is um, to dehumanize those who make the choices or do the things that you're talking about. And so there is a, a challenge, I think, in in being clear that there is such a thing as evil, but not dehumanizing people who make those choices. Every People who make those choices are still human beings. I, I like that, that softness in line. It's sort of hackneyed, but about the, the line of good and evil running down the heart of each individual human person. It's hmm. not so much that you can easily find the evil people out there, but yes. that we're yeah. all implicated to some extent. Yeah, we, have, we all have a capacity to make bad choices, and... Yes, I don't know. I mean, um, yeah. Do you have a, a dis, um, definition of evil? It's a good question. <laughs> it's the absence of the good is the obvious one. But um, I have had a sense, as I get a little older, just people dying around you. You know, get, my, my father-in-law said when, when you get to your 40s, people will start dying around you. Hmm. Um, and that is, has started to happen. And, uh, <laughs> it's interesting. Whoops, I feel emotional because thinking about a, friend, a, a young friend who took their own life recently and that sense of people not being able to access the good or be somehow losing a connection to the good, which I identify very much with God mm. in various ways, that there's something evil that gets in the way. That's where my thinking goes. Also, mm. I f- find, I think of another death uh, of, an, of a much older person, there's something about human life that is very, even when everything is fine, there's, there's sort of tragedy is lurking everywhere. I've been noticing lately that um, there's a friend in a rest home and mm. a good life. 
But there's something very, very sad about even the end of a good life where all the connections are severed and hmm. um, the sort of meaninglessness of, of that. On the face of it, is there's some evil about that, I think. Something hmm. really fundamentally fundamentally broken and I'm very keen on doing everything I can to alleviate suffering and adjusting the structures of societies to society to do that but just noticing now that even very good lives are marred by mm. by the, uh, the evil of the world I suppose mm. Mm. particularly if you're saying I was hearing a sort of theme about the key to reconciliation and stuff is our looking within a bit and, and seeing oh, I'm actually part of this problem it's not just something out there yeah, and the capacity to listen to somebody else's story is is quite important. That I think there's hardly any changes that I can think of that people have ever made without having some relationship with another person about that. You know, like just being told to change is pretty pretty useless, isn't it? I am conscious. It's it's a, it's a very deep difficult difficult issue for each person to make about the constellation of relationships they might have in their lives and so i wouldn't dream of you know saying that there's a kind of prescription Mm. it's just a process of discernment i think for each person to try to figure out one last question yes of course uh what does spirituality mean to you nothing really Nothing. I, I'm sorry to say, um, spirituality doesn't mean anything to me. Um, I think what means something to me is is stories and listening to other people's stories and trying to be part of a bigger story that I feel is is happening and seeing a bigger story. You know, so no spirituality. I'm afraid that's kind of an empty term to me. I'm I'm afraid. I'm sorry. What does it mean to you, Matt? It's a good question. Um, I love that you said that. <laughs> you weren't afraid to say it doesn't mean anything. <laughs> to me, it means um, it means connection with the highest thing, uh-huh. a sense of um, sort of paradoxically maybe a uh-huh. sense of both being grounded and connected uh-huh. to the highest thing. And I notice it weirdly, again, slightly later in life, I'm 43, singing in church. Oddly enough, I, I found find that there's something in me that sort of opens up uh-huh. to what I think of as God. Hopefully uh-huh. it's God and not some projection uh-huh. of my own imagination. So that's some of what it means to me, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, there's yeah. also something about community and something about being part of a, of a kind of healthy community that is kind of vibing, mm-hmm. good, healthy, productive uh-huh. vibes. There's, there's mm-hmm. something about spirituality in that that is mm-hmm. not very well defined. I think I might slightly be resisting this word spirituality in the same way that I resist the word wellness because I feel like spirituality and wellness have have had these industries grow up around them um, that are are possibly around kind of, and this is reductive, so apologies for that, because I know there's way more to both of those things than this, but there's there's a there's a um, commerce aspect to both of them, and then there's an introverted. Um, well, you know, as long as I'm feeling well, that's all good. You know, life is good. You know, an individualist kind of approach that capitalism has done to those two words. <laughs> so maybe that's my internal resistance. I can imagine that there's good stuff to be reclaimed about both spirituality and wellness. <laughs> you prefer story and community. So. Yeah, story yeah. and community to me is. Because those are active, they're active and they're relational. Mm. Whereas spirituality to me feels potentially quite individualistic. Lovely critique. 
I so appreciate your time today, Rebecca, and I'm sure our listeners will as well. Thanks very much for sharing so much of your valuable time with us. Thank you, Matt. It's been really fun.